The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Well, good morning. So good to be with you this morning. Uh, to be with my brother Matt, whom I love dearly. I can remember when this church was in Matt's mind for many years, as we talked about it and prayed about a possible work in Richmond. And so to be with you all this morning and to see what the Lord has done is an absolute joy. So thank you for having me. Would you join me in a brief word of prayer again? Can't pray too much, and then we'll open up God's word. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of, of having our own copies of your word in our hands. Uh, we pray that you would help us to hide it in our hearts. Help me to be faithful uh, with your word, Lord, help us uh, to not only hear, but to heed to your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you going to a funeral? Are you going to a funeral? That's the question the well-known pastor and theologian and reformer Martin Luther once asked his wife, Katharina, or Kate. Luther was in the midst of one of his many dark bouts of depression. And seemingly nothing and no one could help, not even his wife's counsel or encouragement. And so one day, Kate put on an all-black dress. When Luther saw his wife in this attire, he, he noticed and asked, are, are you going to a funeral? No, Kate replied. But since you act like God is dead, I wanted to join you in your mourning. Luther got the point <laughs> and soon recovered. There's something in that, isn't it? Life is hard, often made more difficult by our commitment to follow Jesus. And during trials, during attacks, during criticisms and opposition, externally and internally, we contend to mourn. But Christians ought to mourn differently than the world does. We can acknowledge the hardships and the hurts of life, but endure them with a certain buoyancy and hope that we sang about just a few moments ago because of what the Lord Christ has done, because God lives and because God is good to his people. And we're called to live as if we actually believe what we sing about. We're called to live as if we actually believe what we read about in the scriptures about God, that he actually exists and lives and loves and cares for us. 
And so the psalm we'll study this morning that our sister just read for us, Psalm 4, helps us to do that. If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 4 or turn back to the bulletin page. Psalm 4 falls in book one of the Psalms. Uh, The Psalms are divided up into five books, telling one kind of cohesive story. Psalms 1 through 41 make up book one of the Psalms, most of which are written by David, one of the most important figures in the Old Testament. You you see it even in the uh, superscription over Psalm chapter 1. We read that it's a Psalm of David. All the Psalms in book one of the Psalter seem to, to tell the story of the rise of God's anointed king. And right along with his rise, the rise of many enemies against him. And if you look at how the, the Psalter opens in Psalm one, it talks about the blessed man. But then right after that in Psalm two, we learn that this blessed man will be met with much opposition. The nations will rage against the Lord and against his anointed. So all throughout the the first book of the Psalter, you see that kind of the anointed man, David, the rise of many against the Lord's anointed. While we don't know the exact background behind Psalm chapter four, as we study it, we'll see that there are many people against the Lord's king, many people against the Lord. And yet David shows us something here of how we should live. I mean, they're real oppositions, real enemies. But if God is real, and he is, then we ought to live a certain way by trusting him. So here's what I think is the main idea of Psalm chapter four. The main idea of the passage this morning. In trials, trust that the living God listens to the pleas of his people. And works to sustain and satisfy them. In trials, trust that the living God listens to the pleas of his people, to the cries of his people. And works to sustain and satisfy them. Though times are dark for David, he does not act like God is dead. He believes God lives and is active and he shows us what we should do if God is indeed real. And so as we walk through this passage, we'll hang our thoughts around four actions that we should take if the Lord really lives. Number one, we should pray. We said that in verse one. Number two, repent. We said that in verses two and three. Number three, worship. We see that in verses four through five. And number four, rejoice. Verses six through eight. So number one, pray. Number two, repent. Number three, worship. And number four, rejoice. Number one, pray. And notice in this passage, there are are four addresses. In in verse one, David talks to God. In verses two and three, David turns and talks to his enemies, to his adversaries. In verses four and five, David seems to talk to those in Israel friendly to him. Those who are for him, to his advocates. And then lastly, in verses six to eight, he again turns and talks to God. 
where David starts off and where he ends is most important. With the Lord. In communion with him. He's praying. No matter what's going on in life or what other folks are doing around him, our focus, David's focus, is first on the Lord. Talk to him, David reminds us, before you talk to men. David cries out in verses one and two, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now, many of us might be appalled with David's approach here. I mean, he makes demands of God. Answer me. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. He didn't follow the acts acronym. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, then supplication. You can't just approach God like this. We, in our supposed piety, want to soften David's language some. Make it more passive, less demanding. Lord, may you please answer me. If it be your will, would you be gracious to me? Isn't it interesting how we can more easily criticize how others pray than be confronted by how we don't? There's an intimacy here with God that David has. An intimacy that that doesn't feel the need to dance around with delightful language. With all this kind of honorific titles, you know, sometimes you hear folks pray. They're like, oh, Lord, God, majestic, almighty. You're like, when are you actually going to pray? <laughs> David is not trying to impress others by how he prays. He don't care what the folks in the room are going to say at service review. No, David prays like he's talking to the Lord of the universe and like he has direct access to him. He he talks to God like he knows him and like God knows him. It's the difference between a a friend of yours who who comes over occasionally and and politely addresses your parents with all kind of pleasantries. Hi, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. You know, they kind of stand at the door, wait to be invited in. Versus you coming in the house, you know, you slam the door behind you. Hey, what's up, mom and dad? You kind of plop plop down on the couch. Right. There's a familiarity there that that just understands that they are for you, that they love you, that that they are inviting you in, that you don't need to kind of have a a hands-off approach to your own parents. What is the same here? There's a familiarity with David, a closeness with God that assumes and trusts God's care and concern for him. And David acts upon that. Right, right, this is the God of David's righteousness. This is the God who declares David righteous in his sight. No matter what anyone else is saying, right, the Lord declares me righteous. Friends, that's the confidence that we have. That's the confidence we just sang about. That all I've done, all the sin I've done has been washed away by the blood of Christ. The Lord considers me righteous. So who cares what people are saying about me? I have access to him by by the righteousness and blood of Christ. David understands that God is for him. God has committed himself to his king, and through his king, God has committed himself to his covenant people. David calls out to this God often. For for David, prayer seems to be a constant practice, a steady discipline. He prays until he gets answers. 
And he actually expects God to answer. Answer me when I call, he demands. Be gracious and hear my prayer. But what, what drives this expectation that God will hear? That God will answer? Well, it's the nature of God. David believes that God exists, that he lives, that he's active, that he's powerful, that he cares. Well, what does it say that in the text? I mean, there's no formal statement of faith here by David. No, no kind of ancient article about God like we find in many of our statements of faith. Well, yes, there is. Only it's wrapped up in the practice of prayer. You see, you show what you really believe about God by your prayer life. You can have the most exquisite, biblically referenced, theologically sounding prayer or understanding of God, but the proof is in the prayer. Do you believe the God you talk so eloquently about? Well, if so, you would talk to him like this. God is not a distant idea or a dormant deity for David. God is the almighty creator and sustainer who is ever present with his people. He can help in any kind of trouble and save from every kind of problem. And notice David's confidence in God and that he will answer his prayer. Notice that it's grounded upon God's past care. Look there in the, in the middle of verse one. David recounts a previous instance, probably multiple previous instances where he was in distress. He cried out to God and God answered. David says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. And so now in present distresses, David has confidence that God will act, that God will answer. Be gracious to me now, just as you've been gracious to me before and hear my prayer. God hears, God answers. Do you believe that? What tempts you away from such faith? Maybe you, you think God hears, but he doesn't answer. I mean, none of the things you pray for ever seem to happen. But could it be that God granted you the relief that you prayed for, yet you failed to acknowledge it? I mean, in the midst of many gloomy days where the darkness of depression hovered over you like a heavy cloud, or amid many frustrating encounters with bad bosses, or fights with fussy children, or disagreements with difficult spouses, you've prayed daily for some relief. And if you were honest, there have been days over the past year, over the past week even, where things were just slightly better. But have you dismissed all those days in favor of holding on to the narrative that things are all bad all the time with no help and no hope? Do, do you pray and expect God to answer and then look for him to show up? 
Are you able to have your faith strengthened by saying with David, Lord, you gave me relief then in distress, and I know you will now. I think we can be helped to do this by by doing three things. Number one, pray specifically. Pray specifically. It's fine to pray, Lord, be with me today, or or, Lord, help me today. But those kind of broad prayers are hard to track. Better to, to narrow them down some. Lord, be with me today in this meeting with my coworker. You know his tendency to throw me under the bus, to exalt himself by pulling me down. Be with my tongue that I wouldn't lash out in anger. Be with my heart that I wouldn't harbor bitterness. Be with my mind that I would think only on true and good things, how he is a fellow image bearer who, who has dignity and respect. Be with him and restrain him from finding his identity in his work. Appoint him to see his need for something more, his need for you. You can pray those specific things and then go to your meeting and then leave that meeting where you kept your calm, where you didn't grow frustrated, where your coworker actually acted like a decent human being was civil for for once, you can leave that meeting and say not, today was a better day than usual, but rather the Lord gave relief. Pray specifically and look for the Lord to answer specifically and praise him when he does. Second, pray scripturally. Pray scripturally. Link those specific prayer requests to specific scriptures. God loves his word and intends to honor it. You can know you're praying the right kind of things when you pray from his word. So take a passage of scripture and use it as fuel for prayer. Earlier, we we read responsively from Matthew chapter 5. One of the verses there was, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, pray from that specific verse, specific prayers for your purity, your purity in speech, your purity in what you watch. Pray that God would guard your heart and your eyes from finding happiness in looking at illicit sexual images and instead would give you happiness in seeing him. And at the end of a day, give thanks to God that he kept you. Yesterday was bad, but today he kept you from looking and being satisfied by wasteful things and instead gave you joy by looking at his word. He gave relief. Third, pray steadily. So pray specifically, pray scripturally, pray steadily. One of the things we we see here is that prayer is meant to be persistent. Perhaps we've had too high hopes that a single prayer would deliver us from all distresses. And so when the next trial comes, you figure, well, what's the use of praying? But the Lord has never promised paradise in this life. If anything, he's promised problems. 
Thorns and thistles are part and parcel of life in a fallen world. And more distinct, more direct attacks are yours when you join with Christ against this wicked world. And it turns and hates you for it. Saints, but as problems persist, so should prayers in greater and greater volume, showing that you believe that God is greater than all your enemies, that he's bigger than all your problems, that he's able and willing to help you. But why would God care about us so much? Why would he help us as sinful as, and, and as unrighteous as we are? Well, well, because we're hidden in his son. He loves us and he cares for us, not because we're unrighteous. No, he loves us and he cares for us because we've placed our faith in his son who is righteous, who is our righteousness, who came from heaven and lived the perfect life of obedience to God that we should have lived. And then laid down his life and picked up a cross and died the death that you and I deserve to die. He got up after three days and ascended into heaven and he commands all of us to turn from our sins and put our trust in him. And when we do, we become God's children. He becomes our father. We have the same kind of familiarity and access to God as David does here so that we can boldly approach his throne with confidence, the writer of Hebrews says, trusting that he will hear and he will help us. David was God's king whom God committed himself to. But he pointed to the future king, the future Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came and established his reign by living that righteous life and conquering sin, by dying and rising for us, that he might be forever enthroned in our hearts. And we show that we believe that God lives and has done something magnificent and powerful for us and is still for us, is still on our side. We show that by praying. So pray. Pray like you believe that God is real. Secondly, repent. If God is real and alive, what should we do? Number two, repent. Notice David's address changes in in verse two and no longer is he directly addressing God but but seems to turn and address those who are against him his enemies oh men he says in verse two how long shall my honor be turned into shame how long will you love vain words and seek after lies there are many in Israel against Israel's king They're against him specifically because he was God's anointed, God's king. And as people have always raged against God, they always rage against those who belong to God. You know, that's that's why you catch so much heat as a Christian. It doesn't have to do so much with you or your personality. Jesus said, if they if they hate me, they will hate you, too. David, as God's king, deserves honor. But instead, many are seeking to shame him, to discredit him, to dethrone him. Who are they? Well, the list of candidates is vast. If this psalm is connected in setting to the previous psalm, it would include David's own son, Absalom, whom if you allow your eyes to dart over to to Psalm 3 in the the, uh, superscription, it tells us that 
He tried to run his father off the throne and kill him. Absalom wasn't alone. Many people rose up in opposition to David. Many spoke in contempt of him. And notice how David frames their actions as more serious than simply personal affronts. And their attempts to shame him, they display a love for sin. They love vain or empty words. They love lies. They were thinking and saying untrue things about David. They were doing whatever it took to bring him down. And David here pulls back the layers some and and exposes their actions for what they really are. Sin. They've broken the ninth commandment not to bear false witness. How long will you continue to rebel, David asks? How long will you love lies? It's meant to serve as something of a a spike in the road on their race to, to ruin God's king. You know, sometimes we need to let people know the deeper significance and the dangers of their actions in order to wake them up. And people might say, I'm just ambitious. I just have a lot of drive. That's why I always work. That's why I'm willing to do whatever to get to the top. Or do you love money? People might say, "I I was just joking. Or I'm just using my blog or Twitter feed to tell it like it is about this person or their issues. Or do you love lies? Do you love slander? Friends, we don't need to try to smooth out sin. I mean, everybody's already doing that anyway. That's what's natural to us. We all want to call what we're doing something other than what it really is. I'm just stretching the truth a little bit. I'm just exaggerating some. I'm just being strategic. I'm just playing the game. No, you're lying. You're scheming. You're sinning. And you love it. And whenever you love sin, you reveal a hatred for God. You find yourself ultimately opposing him and his will. David wants his enemies to know this, wants them to know the severity of their actions. Look at verse three. He says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. While they set themselves against David, speaking lies against him, they should know that they cannot win. It's God who set apart David as his king, right? It's not that I've self-exalted myself. You are warring against God Almighty. He's on my side. And when I call to him for relief, he will answer me. Which is good news for me, but bad news for you. Because in rescuing his king, God will wreck all his enemies. This is a warning not to keep warring against God, against his people. A warning that should lead the wicked to stop their evil ways. Friends, that's what all the warnings in Scripture are meant to do, to cause us to repent, to turn away from our sins and to turn to God. I wonder, have you done that? 
If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, have you considered the impact of your actions? Have you considered the weightiness behind them? I mean, worse than speaking against and rejecting this earthly king that we read about here, David, you've spoken against and denied the king of heaven, Jesus Christ. You've loved lies by not believing that he is who he said he was. The eternal son of God who became a man and suffered and died to save you from your sins. You've heard that message and rejected it. You believed History Channel documentaries rather than the very son of God. And the Lord will hold you accountable. How long will you love lies? Allow the warnings of scripture today to soften your heart and to lead you to repentance. Let this day be marked down as the day where you stopped your rebellion against the Lord. Where you heard his warnings to put down your swords, to put down your weapons of warfare, to put down your arms aimed against the Lord and to instead turn to him and ask him for help. As Matt said earlier, the the Lord loves to hear a sinner's plea for forgiveness. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. Stop warring. Come to the Lord today instead. Turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. But you know, repentance is not just simply a one-time act for unbelievers. That's what we all need to do. So perhaps you are a Christian, a member of River City Baptist Church. But there's some sin in your life even now that you need to repent of. Some sin that you've been calling something else, something less than what it really is. Let this verse, let this passage kind of wake up in you. No, whatever you're calling it or whatever cover you're trying to put over that thing, it's sin and God is against it. Maybe it's a grumbling heart. Maybe it's a critical spirit. Maybe it's some kind of open conflict with another member. Well, no, that if God sets apart the godly for himself, and the godly include all those who trust in God's son, then what is that grumbling heart, that critical spirit, that open conflict that you have with another brother or sister in Christ? What is that other than rebellion against God himself? What is it other than sin that needs to be repented of? Would you repent of your sins today? Repentance is the right response of sinful beings, the only right response of sinful beings in the midst of a holy and righteous God. So repent. Third, what should mark our lives as as we live before a living God? Number three, worship. Worship. Now, Now you can scan this entire psalm and not see that word worship at all. You might have a hard time seeing the concept, even if you don't see the word. Perhaps you you might see how we get worship from verse five, where David says, you know, that the people are to offer right sacrifices. Certainly that's a, a form of worship. But I think we need to more broadly think of worship. Too often we've confined worship to simply the service on Sunday mornings, the 1030 a.m. worship service. 
or even more narrowly, we've uh, we've distilled worship down to a specific segment in a part of the service where the worship team sings some worship songs. That's worship. Uh, But biblically, worship is an all of life activity. As one author says, worship is our service to God. It is acting and thinking and speaking as if he really is who he says he is. And we really are who he says we are. In verses four and five, David seems to be addressing yet another group. Seems to be addressing those in Israel who are his advocates, his supporters. They are pro-David. And so as they see how their king is treated, how others are speaking lies and seeking to shame and discredit him, seeking to dethrone him, they're angry, upset. They're ready to go on the defensive and fight back. That's probably the natural reaction that David would have, too. But he calls them not to war, but to worship. Worship the Lord. Yes, offer sacrifices to him in verse 5 and, verse 4, be angry and do not sin. You see, worship is not merely what you come to do one day out of the week. Worship is also what you refrain from doing every other day of the week. You can come here on Sundays with mouths full of praise and worship. But you're not worshiping God if all week long your mouth has been full of cursing as well. I mean, James says in James 3 that out of the same mouth should not come blessing and cursing. Please don't say you're worshiping God if that's the case. You might come here with your heart full of joy on Sundays. You're not worshiping the Lord as he calls you to if you've wreaked havoc on people in your home and in your office and online throughout the week. I mean, that's one of the main things God kept condemning the people of Israel for in the writings of the prophets. It's what Jesus kept condemning the Pharisees for in the Gospels. They kept all the religious rituals. They had perfect attendance on on Sundays or Saturdays. They kept all the formal religious duties, but their lives were rotten and full of sin. They said, we're worshiping the Lord. Jesus said, your hearts are far from him. And here David instructs the people, look, look, you might be angry at what's going on around you. You might be angry with the situation at hand that that people are trying to tear me down. I'm angry, too. But you have a far greater obligation than to defend my honor. A, a, A far greater duty than to let your anger vent. You are required to worship the Lord. And part of worshiping him, part of honoring him with all your life is to live holy before him and refrain from sin. Be angry. But don't sin. Friends, not all anger is sinful. There is a justified anger. An anger, for instance, against injustice. An anger against oppression. An anger against what's unjust and improper and ungodly. Anger against something like like what the people here would have been witnessing. 
foes who are trying to defy God's plans and dethrone God's king. It is right to be angry at wrong. It is right to be angry at wrong. But friends, even righteous anger can take a wrong turn. When you lash out in your anger at others. When you decide, I'm mad and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to give somebody a piece of my mind. Somebody about to catch my wrath. And you feel justified in doing so. I mean, over the last couple of years, we saw people rioting on city streets and rioting at the U.S. Capitol because they were ticked off, fed up, ready to do something about things. And they felt that their anger Excuse their actions of assaulting police officers and destroying property. How different is that than the instruction David gives here? There are genuine reasons to be angry, but never a reason to sin. The former never validates the latter. So then how is it possible to be legitimately angry yet to refrain from sinning. Well, keep on reading. That's generally the answer to all of uh, the questions you find in the Bible. Just continue reading the next, next passage. So into verse 4 and into verse 5, it shows us what we are to do with our anger. Even our justified anger, we are to commit it to the Lord. David says, ponder in your own beds and keep silence. Don't feel the need to go lash out at your enemies. Do what David has already modeled in verse one. Lay on your bed, pray to God for relief. And keep your lips closed before others. And keep fulfilling your covenant responsibilities. For the people of God then, go offer right sacrifices. For the people of God now, come to church. Pray. Do contact evangelism. Encourage other Christians. In other words, don't worry about taking care of all the wrong in the world. All the evil of avenging all the godly, of avenging yourself against all attackers. Put your trust in the Lord to take care of what's wrong and you worship him. And let him work on you. Saints, God will hold others responsible for their rebellion against him and his people. And God will hold you responsible for how you respond. Some Christians allow their anger at some wrong to derail their walk with the Lord. They are so mad, so upset that they're ready to leave the church. Perhaps because of some resentment of others in the church who they feel have have done them wrong. They make it their mission to, to fight back against those who've done them dirty. They, they make personal vendettas to punish any perceived slights. But friends, that ultimately destroys you more than it destroys them. Don't set your heart on warring against others. Worship the Lord with all your heart, with all your being. Trust in him. And very practically, what, what might this look like? 
Well, you might type that angry email to a family member or a church member, to an elder or a coworker, letting them know how incredibly mad you are over what they said or what they did, but you never send it. Rather, you delete it. And then you go into your draft folder and you permanently delete it. Or in that trash folder, you know, we can keep stuff in that trash for 30 days. <laughs> you catch one night when they say something else, you're like, I'm going to go restore this one. <laughs> now, you permanently delete it. Not because you need to suppress your anger, but because you need to express it to the right person. To the Lord. That he might deal with it in the right way. You trust that he knows better than you what to do when you've been wrong. You give everything over to him, even your anger. Friends, that is worship. Fourth and lastly, what action should be ours in any circumstance as we live before the Lord? Number four, we should rejoice. Rejoice. That's hard sometimes, isn't it? These circumstances can sour our outlook on life to the point that we grow despondent and despairing. I was in a barbershop a couple of weeks ago, and one of the barbers was just lamenting how his life seems to be stormy day after stormy day after stormy day with no kind of let up. Perhaps you're there this morning, stuck in what feels like a pit of despondency, a pit of despairing. Wondering, wondering if there will ever be any kind of breakthrough, any kind of hope. And that's where some in Israel were. They, they were stuck in gloom. They, they looked at David's plight and, and they saw that things are not going well. I mean, the fate of a country is often tied to the fate of its leader. If David's life has been threatened, if David is being discredited, credited, what of us? They were tempted to be discouraged. They saw that his life was full of enemies, that he was on the run, that his life was near ruins. It didn't garner much encouragement for them. It didn't give them much confidence or hope in their country and really not much hope in their God. I mean, David's supposed to be super close with the Lord. Look what's happening to him. That's where David himself was tempted to be. Where we all are when troubles come. When we take hit after hit after hit after hit, will there ever be any let up? Will it ever stop raining? Will the sun ever come out in my life? I mean, just just look at the news headlines. Look at all the tragedies going on in the world. Think of all the tragedies going on in your homes. The holidays are coming up. There'll be empty seats at the table that were there last year. Some of them have died in tragic ways. Some of them have abandoned their wives or their husbands. Some of them have no use for Jesus anymore and don't want to be around you crabby Christians. It's so much sorrow. When is there ever going to be any kind of relief? Perhaps you can relate to the mindset that many have in verse 6. Many are saying, who will show us some good? It's only bad news all the time. Who's going to show us some good? 
I mean, it's death and disease and danger and debt. The midterms didn't turn out the way I thought they were going to. The, the person I voted for is not in office. The kids are not behaving well. There's nothing good, there seems. Everything you placed your hope in has fallen to the ground. It's like sand passing through your fingers. You thought you had something. It's on the ground now. Who will show us some good? Our hearts are tempted to ask such questions amid despair. And our hearts are prone to go looking for answers in the wrong places. Who will show us some good? Well, we, we look for the answer in, in other people. Life will be good, will be better with a spouse to cure my loneliness or to satisfy my unfulfilled sexual desires. Or the doctor will show me some good. Give good news that the treatment's worked. The cancer is untraceable, it's gone. Or the procedures worked after all these years, we're finally able to have children. We play the lottery thinking that if I hit that jackpot, life will certainly be good. No utility bills, no rent, no mortgage, college will be paid for. I can get the Tesla. But notice where David points miserable people to find some good. To God. Lord, people are looking for some hope, for some happiness. So the end of verse six, lift up the light of your face and shine upon us. Lord, show us more of you, more of your character, more of your glory, more of your goodness. Show your favor and satisfy your people. Now, maybe your heart just sank a little bit or balled up into a hard fist. Because this sounds like just another tired old Bible answer from some tired old Bible preacher who does not understand your problems. Who just th throws out God as the answer for everything. Kind of like your kids in Sunday school, right? Or, all right, the answer for everything is God, right? It, it sounds like that, right? Especially me, I'm a guest preacher. I don't know anything about you really. And here I am talking about God is going to show you some good. Yeah, right. Friends, it's true that sometimes pastors can sloppily dismiss people's feelings. Pastors and preachers can sometimes be unlistening and unloving and throw God out as a kind of magic bullet for all of life's problems. That's true. But probably more true is our tendency to dismiss God as the answer to all of life's problems. Yeah, 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 faith is fine, a little church is fine, a little God is fine, but let's be real, I need something more to really make me happy, to truly satisfy me. I need something more than God, God plus something. We, we believe uh, justification by faith alone. We, we say that with our words, right? God alone, but in practice, a lot of us are like, Jesus plus something is what I truly need to be truly happy. Well, friends, the Bible is meant to meet us in real life. It's not some fantasy book or fairy tale. It meets people in real life situations. 
It means people who are feeling miserable. This is not a kind of, you know, hokey pokey book and everybody smile and be happy. This is a book that meets sufferers and people who are sorrowful. And it means to produce and give you real hope and real help. In the midst of real dangers and real problems, who you really need to show you some good. The Bible continually from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 21 says God. There is a one word answer for everything in life, and his name is the Lord. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. This is ultimately his word written through his servant, David. David prays that God would show his people some good. And for David, this is not some kind of throwaway phrase. Mere Bible talk, something he's supposed to say as the religious leader of the people, but he really don't believe it. No, for David, this is a lived reality of what God can and will do. I mean, if you want to talk about people with problems, people that have gone through some mess, David is the poster child. And he was constantly stalked and harassed most of his life by a madman. Saul, I mean, most of y'all have never had a spear thrown at you. If you have, let's talk after service. That'll be a pretty interesting conversation. He committed horrible sin by sleeping with another man's wife, Bathsheba. He doubled down on that sin and had her husband, Uriah, killed. God judged him for that sin by taking the child born from that illicit union between Bathsheba and David and putting that newborn child to death. He lived to see the horror of another one of his sons, Amnon, rape his daughter, Tamar. And another son was no better. We just read about him in Psalm 3's inscription. Absalom tried to run his father off the throne and kill him to take his spot. I mean, talk about somebody who should be despairing. Somebody whose life should be gloomy. Talk about someone who should be deconstructing his faith. Talk about someone who should have left the Lord a long time ago. It's David. Yet it's the same David with all his problems, with all his messy past, with all his issues, with all his gloom and with all his worry. It's the same David in verse seven saying, you have put more joy in my heart. What? You have put more joy in my heart than they, all my enemies, all those against me, than they have accumulated when their wine and their grain abound. When things are going well for everybody else, they're living it up. They're filled with food and wine, with plenty of finances. They're living securely with seemingly no worries. When they have joy, David says, I have more because God gives more. Saints, that's a good little three-word summary of life that you might want to meditate on this, this, this week. God gives more. It's no use denying that some things in life bring joy. Marriage brings joy. Babies bring joy. Good health brings joy. Riches and sex and status bring joy. But God gives more. 
There's nothing in this life that can satisfy you. Right? Because the, the joy in those situations rely on external factors. Right? They're dependent on the economy being up. They're dependent on your spouse acting right. Fat chance for some of us, right? If you're such a <laughs> husband, right? They're dependent on something external. Right? I'd be happy if X was true. But David here speaks of an internal joy that God gives and is dependent on God himself. You put more joy in my heart. There's a deposit that God makes of joy. God is a happy God. The Bible calls him the, the, the blessed God. God is not some kind of craggy guy who's always grumpy. God is delightful. And the God who has infinite delight inputs that infinite delight in, in creatures like us. You put more joy in my heart. There's a God-given joy that's not produced by anything on the outside. And that perseveres even through the lack of any of the supposed external factors that should cause people to to be happy. It's the joy of knowing God of being in close fellowship with him. It's the joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven. We just sang about it earlier. My sin. Oh, the bliss, the joy of this glorious thought. My sin, not some little part of it, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. There's a joy that you can have even when life seems tragic because of the joy that Jesus Christ gives you. The joy of knowing him intimately. David knew that joy. The king that David pointed to, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, knew that joy of close, intimate fellowship with God. Even on the cross, when everybody left him, his closest friends betrayed him. They ran away. When everybody mocked him, when all his attackers were against him, when his body was badly beaten and he was inches from death, the Bible tells us that there was joy in his heart. For the joy that was set before him, the Bible says he endured the cross. How was he able to endure all these external things? I mean, good health is supposed to bring you joy. He had none of it. Friends are supposed to bring you joy. They were gone. The approval of people is supposed to bring you joy. They're criticizing him. How can he have joy? Because of what was before him. He was about to return to his heavenly father and have eternal fellowship with him. Friends, and in Christ, that's where we are going. It's that future that Matt talked about in, in, in the fourth line of it as well. The Lord Jesus coming back. And so we can endure all the things in this life for the joy that's set before us. It's the joy of being close to the Father. It's the real joy that we have now. That knows that though there are many outside enemies against us, God is not one of them. He's not against you. In Christ, he's for you. And he uses even the most difficult trials Not to crush you, but to build up your faith and your joy. That's why James can say, count it all joy, 
when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that they're producing endurance and making you mature and complete in your faith. The Lord is meaning to, to build into your joy. It's a joy that will be consummated when King Jesus returns and calls us home. Has it been a hard week? Has there been news over the past few weeks that's, that's kind of turned your life upside down? Has it been a hard year? Has it been a hard life? Perhaps the Lord is, is using that hardness to cause you to realize the futility of this life to bring you any real happiness, but the fullness of the joy that's found in knowing him. It's a joy that brings peace in all of life's problems. David ends in verse 8 saying, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. See, when you're happy in the Lord, you can have rest even with all the havoc going on in the world and in your home. Because there's joy in your heart. Because you know that God lives and he's for you. Because you know that amid any kind of trial, the living God listens to your pleas and he works to sustain and to satisfy you. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for faith to believe what we just read. Give it to us in Jesus, we pray. Amen.